0: Hey and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunti. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. It's a great pleasure to be talking to Francesca Minerva today. Francesca is a research fellow at the University of Milan, where she works on applied ethics. She's also the co-founder and co-editor, along with Jeff McMahon and Peter Singer, of the newly launched Journal of Controversial Ideas. Francesca, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: <laughs> Francesca, as a starting point, can you give me the back thinking behind the launch of this very beautifully named Journal for Controversial Ideas? It feels like it should be in a Tolkien novel
1: well, it started like quite a while ago, almost ten ten years now. So I I called her an article that was published in the Journal Medical Ethics that got a lot of media attention and attention from the public. The topic of the article was what we called afterbirth abortion, which is basically infanticide and um We were arguing on the moral status of uh, fetuses and and newborns and um, comparing them and saying that their moral status is similar. And um, the paper got a lot of attention, quite surprisingly, because in 2012 it wasn't really common to get a lot of media attention, like Twitter was not as um, big as it is now, or at least... I think yeah, people weren't really spending as much time on social media as now. Basically, we were arguing in favor of um, infanticide, so it was a moral defense of infanticide on the basis of moral status. So we were saying, in in many countries or in some countries, you can have an abortion up to nine months of pregnancy, um, but there's nothing that really changes between eight nine months of pregnancy and one day of after birth. Um, when it comes to the moral status of the embryo, fetus, and newborn, because they have exactly the same capacities, cognitive capacities, and of course that depends on the reason why you think abortion is justifiable. Some people justify abortion on the basis of women's autonomy, and if you agree with that argument, um, then you won't find this argument convincing because once the fetus, the embryo, the the, the newborn is out of the woman's body, then any right uh, to abortion should should fall. Um, but um, other people like myself argue that there is a right to morally permissible to, to have an abortion because the, the fetus is not a person in that they don't have an interest in, in living because they don't have the capacity to attribute a value to their own life. That's a capacity that develops after birth. So obviously this paper is... You know, it's not a, a low proposal, but it was just like a reflection, like, why do we think there is such a huge difference? And this is an argument that had been put forward by a lot of philosophers before, so it wasn't particularly new. We have reframed a bit, we added a, a few new bits, but in philosophy, the morality of infanticide has been has been discussed for like 50 years now. Um, So we were quite surprised by the fact that people really overreacted, uh, well, overreacted from our perspective. I mean, overreacted in a sense because uh, we got a lot of death threats and um, very angry emails. And uh, so in a sense, like any death threats as a response to a philosophy paper, um, Is probably and you know an overreaction when you want to kill somebody for expressing an idea, um, but we were not really prepared for that. Obviously, now in retrospect, it seems more understandable to me why all these people reacted so badly, um, because obviously they were not philosophers; they were not aware about um, these arguments and um, and also like newspapers and magazines didn't really do a good job in most cases at reporting what we had actually had written in this paper. So it was just like philosophers argued it's okay to kill babies.
0: There's a couple of different pieces here. The first that you've just described as a sort of media reaction to uh, to this article. Misrepresentation, cheap headlines, philosophers recommend infanticide. I can imagine it. That's terrible for you, both you and your co-author in terms of death threats and everything else. And it's probably bad also on some level for the discipline of philosophy in the public imagination. There are, there are multiple victims here. But actually the second piece, which is that writing this article has had an impact in your, in, you believe for both you and your partner, has a measurable career impact for you. It's not just a media misunderstanding or getting hit up about it. It's also your colleagues. That's yeah. a different game completely.
1: Yeah, it is. And to be honest, it was clear to me almost from the beginning. It took me like a month or two to process this that, you know, the first kind of threats, the first kind of reaction, the actual death threats were not the thing I should worry about. Threats from within academia were the real problem. And, you know, I was right. Nobody actually tried to kill me um, yet. But yes, there were people who told me they couldn't offer me jobs because I was too controversial. We had people like not shaking hands with us at conferences and things like that. But at that point, there was still a good time within academia. People had not started signing petition asking your head of department to get you fired. They' not started starting signing petition to get your paper retracted. Um, so that was still all good. Like compared to what's happening now, um, we were really, really lucky to get that uh, time because ten years forward, um, or even less than that, actually, um, it has become really, really common um, for academics to start sign petitions to get somebody they disagree with fired. The paper retracted, and the editorial board of the the journal uh, fired as well. Of um, so, it's things have changed quite a bit. So I think I've been very lucky overall. Um,
0: So yes, in the intervening ten years, what you're describing is a very different kind of intellectual climate inside universities. Um, There's also a different intellectual climate in the public domain as well. Twitter and Facebook were already extant 2012 but they didn't have the same kind of scale nor actually the same kind of toxicity i think that certainly with twitter there was a sense that things got bad things got violent really over the course of last five six seven years um and facebook perhaps slightly slightly similarly sticking with academia what do you think happened to change this kind of intellectual climate Uh, does it have to do with twitter do you think it has got to do with a sort of public perception
1: I don't know. I don't know if it's related to Twitter or um, in a sense, it has become more common to to believe that we have a right not to be offended. That wasn't really common 10 years ago. Nobody thought that. I mean, of course, people don't want to be offended and they know they shouldn't be offended. But what it implies now to be offended, what it means, is is different. Um, People wouldn't really feel offended by you expressing a different opinion. You know, they wouldn't think, that's my perception maybe, that, you know, you holding a different opinion would imply that they are entitled to shut you down.
0: Where do Uh, you think this comes from?
1: I think that Jonathan Haidt has written about it, he... I don't know if he's right in saying that he started with um, the way, the different way we started treating children and protecting them from physical harm turning into also protecting them from psychological harm and then from any kind of harm, which can also be, uh, you know, defending them from any any opinion that they 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 don't like. That's his explanation, and it's a plausible explanation. So he's a psychologist; um, he he definitely knows better than me. That that that's plausible. Um, and then it extended not only to children, but like to adults who had grown up in a completely different culture. Like, you know, I was I grew up in the eighties; I wasn't coddled at all. <laughs> and um, um, but now I can see also people my generation or older acting like. Yes, they have to be protected from opinions and ideas um, they disagree with. Like, the existence of these ideas, the fact that these ideas are circulating, is somehow a threat um, to them. And that's uh, that's an interesting phenomenon. I don't think it was very common before. Of course, people used to disagree. Like, the people who sent me death threats, they were angry. They disagree with me, and I'm pretty sure they would have been very happy if I had dropped that and stopped writing this kind of paper. Um, But I'm not sure, I don't think they believed that my ideas were really a threat to them, quite ideas. I think they were worried about, you know, these ideas turning to a policy or something like that. Um,
0: Well, how was your colleagues reaction therefore? Because you're talking about the the public responding yeah. in a very violent way but your colleagues did clearly if they refused to shake your hand and they didn't give you jobs etc they clearly did feel like your ideas were dangerous
1: yes some did but i can say that most people i mean my close colleagues they I was at the university of melbourne back then were really supportive uh, the whole department was really supportive um i didn't perceive any um hostile attitude towards them it was more when i started applying for other jobs and i realized that Um, maybe there was, but it was still minority. Also, I mean, there are people that were really, really, really upset. Um, But this is the kind of idea that tends to annoy more people on the right, like conservatives, not people on the left. And people on the left in universities are the largest majority. So I was also kind of lucky in upsetting the right kind of people. If I had upset people on the left, which are the largest majority, um maybe things would have been worse. And uh, it's funny because I, I am obviously like a left wing people. I've always been. Um, and uh, and after we started defending academic freedom and talking about important academic freedom, people started saying that you know we are like conservatives and what to defend the right? I want to come
0: back to this, which is this yeah. very peculiar shift that's happened in so far as the defense of free speech was absolutely intrinsic to every form of leftism in the 1960s and 70s. And then it switches in the last 10, 15 years. Um, but your point is very, very well made about academia itself, which is in the UK and US, I don't know, what, I don't know about Italy, but high 80s and 90% and into the 90% of professors, particularly in the humanities, but ditto, I mean, slightly less in the sciences. um associate with liberal or progressive ideas. Now, there's an element which suggests that perhaps that's normal, that um, the search for new explanations of the world, this search for new ways of understanding, might be a progressive tendency more than a conservative one. But nevertheless, that split is really quite extreme. Um, Francesca, maybe at this point, we jump in and say, okay, so what are these controversial ideas?
1: Yes, we had um, a couple of papers arguing about... Issues related to trans transgender questions, whether um, a woman is an adult female, or whether a woman can also be a trans woman. Uh, So there is this debate whether you know trans women are women or not. So we had two papers arguing the opposite thesis actually. Um, It was very interesting because, um, in a sense, both ideas are controversial, but it depends from where the perspective, obviously, in academia to say that only adult females are women is controversial. Uh, but outside of academia, I think it is more controversial to say that
0: trans women adult are, women. are
1: uh, Yeah, so like, you know, you don't, you don't have to be born a female to be a woman.
0: Okay, so on, we've, Jonathan Haidt provides some suggestion as to where we've, where we've come from, um, coddling and protecting children from, um, from things which might cause them harm. It's a, it's a thesis, whether it's true or not, who knows. Why is identity so much of an issue today? What's your view of why identity is the controversial thing?
1: That's a question I've been asking myself for a long time because, um, because again, there's not something I grew up with um, and um, it, it's a very recent uh, development. Like I, I used to believe, and I still believe, that my race my sex, my gender are just like an accident and what really makes me myself and what really matters are my choices and uh, my ideas. So what I've decided to become and what I believe in that are completely independent uh, from from my gender and, and my race and um, anything. And instead in recent years it seems that what you believe is should be a consequence of what you happen to be genetically so you know if you're a woman you have to believe certain things if you are a white person you have to believe certain things if you're a black person you believe certain things and um, that's that's very strange because it's a very new phenomenon and uh, i i don't know why we should focus on on these elements that are accidents of our existence i think that we should identify way more with our ideas and our projects i mean especially as a philosopher uh, you work a lot on developing your own ideas and uh, on you know becoming uh, a certain kind of person making coherent choices uh, with your moral views so on so forth in a sense, that's that's true of everybody. You know, it can be religious ideas, and people are religious, and people are not. Like it, it makes more sense for me, to, for people to identify as religious and non-religious, as you know, left-wing, right-wing, or uh, utilitarian, ideological um, <laughs> logical. But I don't think my skin color really says anything about myself, or you know, the fact that I happen to be.
0: So that's interesting because that's no longer, as you say, that is absolutely no longer pure orthodoxy specifically in academic circles. The question that I have is where do you think that comes from? Is there a particular series of either philosophical moves which let get, get you there or political moves which get us to a point where identity becomes the area of greatest controversy? Why this rather than redistribution of wealth or, um, or anything else?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Um, it is it is a very interesting question, and uh, I haven't found any convincing answer yet. It's something I'm really interested in in understanding myself, and uh, I don't know because again, like um, it, it come, seems to come from the left, and the left used to be really concerned about uh, social class, wealth, and the things that you know we can actually change, <laughs> and we can do something about. So if we change. You know distribution, for instance, if we can have a uh, universal basic income, we would definitely make the world a better place. And um, you know, if we manage resources to poor people and switch them from billionaires, um, but I think at some point, you know, it, it has become the center of, of the discourse, and it's unclear to me why we wanted to bring that i mean we we it seemed that we were going in the right direction about really focusing on on fundamental issues but i'm sorry i can't really answer your question i have no idea where this is coming from i don't know (laughs) i honestly don't know if you have an answer please tell me um because i i haven't i haven't an answer myself
0: (laughs) can i ask you to go back into um the question of academia because this is something that There's been huge amounts of pushback around and it's not just academia, it's sort of the high level cultural milieu from the letter sent to Harper's uh, 18 months ago from a very broad group of intellectuals claiming that their free speech was being curtailed through to relentless number of academics finding their positions harder and harder um, in both the US and UK and, and, and elsewhere. What has happened here? Why is there, in a sense, this need for a journal of controversial ideas, to go back to it, What and a journal of controversial ideas, which also allows for anonymous contributions? What's happened to the academic environment to to get it where it is?
1: Again, I'm not sure how this came to be. As I said, when I got in trouble uh, about 12 years ago, well, 10 years ago, um Nobody ever mentioned the possibility of having a petition to get me fired or uh, to have the paper, the paper retracted. Uh, now I see it happens all the time and it's something I find extremely disagreeable. I, it is the, the assumption, basic principle of academia that you should discuss and all ideas and debate with your... Uh, people have a different opinion. And if you don't like what's written in the paper, you read another paper uh, proving that what's written in the first paper was wrong or badly argued. And um, you have a better a better explanation of certain phenomena or sort of better hypothesis, better argument. Now, we see a lot of petitions that instead of engaging uh, with the argument, they just aim at... Um, getting rid of the person who developed a certain argument and that's really really odd that really seems to go against what anything that academia should be which is free discussion of every topic and every idea
0: you quote the philosopher Ronald Dworkin in the uh, opening editorial of the of the journal Um, you say that he felt that professors had a paradigmatic duty to discover and teach what they find important and true, even if it goes against the best interests of their audience. And here sort of feels like the break. There is an old fashioned approach, which thinks that truth is the only thing that one chases down. And another approach, this shift, which suggests that actually, if truth causes harm, then harm comes before truth on some level. Is that where you think culture move is inside academia am i oversimplifying i mean i am oversimplifying but yeah
1: yeah and you know in that paper working tracks down this process and he said it has started um yeah in the 60s with the idea that, that the truth is something that people can construct and build instead of something that they have to discover when you start assuming that there is no truth then the whole idea of academia that the, you know you use academia to to find the truth becomes ridiculous and therefore you don't care about academic freedom anymore. Why would you need academic freedom? You don't need academic freedom. what you need to do is to build what you want to be the truth. And you know there are a lot of academics with this agenda, very open agenda. You say, okay well, we want this to be the mainstream opinion. It doesn't matter if it's true or not, And truth itself doesn't really mean anything, because there's not not such a thing as the truth. I think it's completely wrong. I think there is a truth. And I think that the only duty of an academic is to get closer to the truth. It might not be possible to find the truth, but we have a moral and professional, deontological duty to get close to this truth. And I think that the idea that there is no truth is the most dangerous idea <laughs> um, and that we can just, you know, uh, once we have the truth, then we can say, okay, well, these are the facts. We want to build a society that, you know, that is built in a certain way. We don't have to fear the truth. You know, we can still live in the society we want. We can, you know, build a society with equality, when is treated fairly, uh, where everybody can have a good life. Those should be the goals. But to say that, you know, we can't really face the truth, I think it's also a way of infantilizing people. Like, yeah, yeah, you don't need to know the truth. Don't worry. We'll tell you what you have to believe. You are children. People are not children. Again, you know, the the duty of an academic is to, 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 to tell the truth, even when people don't want to hear it. Because you're not finding the truth for those people living necessarily now. You know, you're trying to find the truth for future generations for future research it's a good that um, eventually somebody will benefit from even if it's not people living now so um that's probably when things started collapsing when people some philosophers started arguing that there is the no truth and the truth is something you make up and then you know uh, some people are entitled to to choose what is true or not uh, which is completely different from saying, oh, we are not entitled to have different opinions. We can have different opinions, but then you know we have to test these opinions and test these theories. And uh, eventually the one which is more likely to be the truth um, should be acknowledged as the truth. But
0: so of course it, you end it, up with this tra- yeah. trajectory from postmodernism, which relativizes all truth yeah. to its latest incarnation, which only understands truth as being ultimately subjective. Yeah. And therefore, to your point around skin color, gender, sexuality, etc., being the only true lens, true in quotation marks, that we can analyze what a truth might be. One of the things which is so interesting, if we look at this over the longer period, which you've just done, is how free speech, which starts absolutely in the arsenal of weapons that the left brings to bear on established, old-fashioned, sclerotic culture in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, that, that all the, that that those free speech weapons have now shifted entirely into the camp of the right. I'm framing this in a particular way. The other way of looking at it is to say that having won the, their free speech wars, the left gave up on the principle and it has now returned to the right to kind of push that forward. How would you describe this very peculiar drift from left-wingers being the advocates of free speech to that being very much the preserve of, in some instances, really quite unhinged right-wingers as well
1: yeah i mean on one hand i'm not even convinced that right-wing are really so supportive of free speech i think that's um sometimes or often this free speech card is played by people who are in a minority and so they use free speech as a way to say well our, our opinion should be heard as well i'm not entirely convinced that in a reverse situation for instance where in academia there were 95% 95% of right wing people this 95% would you know support academic freedom of the 5% left wing it seems that it's a matter of switching between majorities and minorities so whoever is in power seems to be more against academic freedom and you know who is a minority has more interest in academic freedom when it comes to like ideas
0: just to pick up on that because this is an interesting comment which is which i've heard elsewhere the people in power today around the world, with the very recent exception of the election of Joe Biden, have predominantly been on the right. So if you looked at France, you look at Merkel's Germany, you look at Italy, um, and of course the UK and US. For the last few years, it has been a right-wing conservative governments that have ruled the roast across these Western, um, these, these Western cultures, Western countries. How has... Um, the right, therefore, being able to play a minority voice? Have they managed to p- play themselves off as the victims of a cultural movement when, in well, fact, their politics and their economics dominated?
1: I think that they are a majority among population. I, I think the majority of people, obviously, according to the election, is right-wing, but not within universities. The majority of people at universities, students and Um, people working in universities, are left-wing. And um, of course, the more left-wing people are in education, the more it's likely that the new generation of educators and teachers will educate people to be right-wing, left-wing. And I have to say, I mean, like, um, the the UK government has taken some measures to protect academic freedom, uh, which I approve of. Even though, again, I'm not really <laughs> a right wing supporter, but whatever major is taking in favor of academic freedom, I'm all for it. But it is possible that then it has become a value of the right, um, and that they, you know it is generally true that they support academic freedom and freedom of speech. Uh, it wasn't traditionally so, but maybe there was this niche of values to take because the left dropped it, unfortunately. And um, and so they said, okay, well, um, let's let's use academic freedom and freedom of speech as a political and as a value we want to to protect to for people to identify with, which makes me very sad because I mean, as again as a left wing people, I would prefer if you were like my people to support academic freedom and freedom of speech, but unfortunately, I've been completely disappointed in this respect.
0: Do you think that we're talking about the very common feature of uh, dominant? majorities just seeking to maintain their cultural hold over the institutions in which they're in power they're in power over as in is what we're watching today in academia the same thing that we've watched across institutions since the beginning of time particular culture ends up dominating and then broadly tries to push foreign bodies out or do you think there is a watershed have we changed philosophically have universities themselves shifted culture so deeply culture of inquiry, culture of politics, whatever it might be, so deeply that actually they are changing the very nature of academia. They're changing the very institutions themselves.
1: Yeah, I'm afraid. uh, I I don't know. Maybe the two things are related. Uh, So maybe it started as, you know, maintaining the status quo. um, And then it became, it it is caused like a complete shift in what is, as I said, like the the mission of academia seems to be different uh, than it used to be. Like, I mean it surprises me still when I see students saying, Oh, I don't want to be exposed to ideas that I don't like. Like I don't want to read papers against abortion. That's completely the opposite of what you should provide a good education. Obviously I am in favor of abortion but and I am in favour of euthanasia and I'm I am in favor of IVF, but you can ask my students. In our course, (laughs) which is for undergraduates, we always discussed both views because it's really important to understand what are both views on every topic so you can have a good education if you're not exposed to ideas you don't agree with um understood the whole point Um, so how does this
0: play out where do we go from here if you think that institutions themselves are putting too much of a burden of truth on subjective experience on the feelings of those people engage with ideas, and you think that is that is attacking the foundations of academic institutions, the academic goal, which is the pursuit of truth, the discovery, you use this lovely word, of truth. What happens now?
1: I don't know if university is going to survive. I don't know if university as we know it is going to survive. I hope so. I hope that university can go back to be institutions where people are taught um, how to think critically, how to learn, um, how to disagree with each other, how to learn, how to get close to the truth. That's the telos of university. That kind of institution, with that telos of finding the truth and teaching people how to think critically and how to think, taking the perspective of different perspective, might not survive. It's definitely not going in that direction. So... <laughs> And that, that scares me, of course. Um, so I don't know if new um, institution, well, obviously, like, you know, I love universities. I have a, I've been wanting to work in university since I was a child. Always been my dream to be a philosopher. And, you know, um, I really work hard to, 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 to get where I am, um, which is what I always wanted to be. So I really believe in education. And the importance of teaching people philosophy. I think people should start studying philosophy at the age of five. At this stage, I I feel a bit discouraged. I don't think, I don't think, I'm still quite happy about working at an Italian university. I think Italian university and some European universities are still providing this kind of old fashioned education, um, if you want to call it like that, in which you know, um, trying to discuss topics, expressing different opinions, teaching people to form their own opinion without indoctrinating them. In other places, it's not going as well. Um, I think the advantage of some European countries is that universities are public um, as well. I think that really, really helps to have public educations with no, pretty much no um, private money, uh, very low fees. Um, then students are not clients, they are students. I guess that when people pay a lot of money for education, they might feel more entitled. They might feel like, you know, well, I don't want to learn this, I don't want to do this, and I paid a lot of money to come here. So, I, you know, it doesn't mean that in other universities, like, you know, there are students committees, students committees in, every, in, in every universities, and their opinion is taken very seriously. But um, you should go to university with the idea that the teachers know better uh, than you what you need to learn. And um, this knowledge has been built during generations and generations. And you need to be aware of this debate if you really want to be informed and and your education to be complete. And you can't say, no, I want to skip this part of history. I want to skip this part of philosophy. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I don't want to... Learn this argument.
0: What has the response been to the launch of the journal?
1: They've been very responsive. Some people were really enthusiastic, uh, very, um, they really welcomed this, uh, this new journal. Some other people were, of course, uh, offended, um, irritated, didn't like it. Some people said it wasn't controversial enough. Some people said it was too controversial. Um, It was like a mixed bag of reactions, but overall, more positive than than negative. I mean, better than what I
0: expected. And critically, is the broad view amongst your colleagues that this journal is needed or that it's actually superfluous?
1: Well, some people say it's superfluous and that, you know, all all ideas are controversial or something like that. All journals publish controversial ideas, but we know it's not true um a lot of journals don't publish even mildly controversial ideas unfortunately so we hope that this journal is necessary and um it's we hope it's not gonna stay for too long we hope that we won't need it for much longer so our plan was to just publish it for a few years and we thought things will change so controversial papers will start publishing again in mainstream journals um Personally, now I'm less optimistic about it, but I really, really hope that's going to happen, that this journal will not be necessary
0: anymore. Putting yourself out of a job. Francesca, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through these controversial ideas. Um, we'll link to the journal in the, uh, in the show notes um, and hope that it doesn't last too long. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that. Was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme, and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia podcast, wherever you listen, and follow us on social media at AskPalia. All our links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.